from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, April 30th. May creeping up on us, starting to get lighter out in the morning, driving to work. Hope everybody is staying safe and sound out there. Social distancing, but... We don't have to distance from connecting with one another. Just want to remind everybody of that. Reach out if you need someone to talk to in this time. I am always available on Twitter, or you could send a text to 710710. Just want to remind you, we are not distancing from community in this time. Just the social distancing. Ahead in this hour, it must be a day to hear from some bigwigs because Jerry DePoto and John Schneider both joining Danny and Gallant this morning. Jerry DePoto at 8.30, John Schneider at 9 a.m. So we'll hear from the Seahawks GM recapping everything that happened over the weekend in the draft. We also got to hear from Pete Carroll on the latest episode of the Flying Coach podcast. And I want to play you some clips from that, recapping what they did in the draft, their decision to take Jordan Brooks in the first round, and why they have no problem being different and going with their, their guy. It's all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to those headlines. The Flying Coach podcast has been... Pretty cool insight and also just new material right now in where are all starved for sports out there. The Ringer is putting on this limited edition podcast between Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll. It's been pretty, pretty awesome to see in three episodes in the latest one recapping the NFL draft. And Steve Kerr asking Pete, uh, yeah, how did it go? We made it through it. Uh, what a what a unique experience it was, you know, and it, such a unique experience in, in coordination and ch- challenge to figure something out that you'd never done before. So it was really, th- that was rewarding to get through it. Our guys were incredible. They were so poised uh, throughout the process. We had, you know, the tech backup people and everything was really smooth. It, uh, we found that there was... Uh, a lot of very little activity in the first round in terms of trading, which is the trading part of it was really the intricacies that we were concerned about. And it was really quiet. And then once, uh, you know, we started up the second day with the whole day, everybody got kind of bold about it. And then it was just like normal. So uh, uh, went fine and and, uh, really happy about our picks and excited about it. And the process went really well. A little bit more on the draft and the setup, everything that went into yeah, it. Yeah, we've heard nothing but good stuff. I wasn't, uh, I had the TV on across the way and uh, wasn't paying attention to the broadcast, of course, because we're paying attention to the draft. So there were the, to hear the comments about people enjoying seeing the families and the kids and all the, you know, the crazy little basic things that happen in our homes. Um, I was kind of surprised at that. I didn't know how that would come across, but uh, it, it was a real good openness about, about the way it was presented and, and uh, you know, Roger did a good job, and everybody really did a good. And it was really his his uh, his foresight to see that we could pull it off, you know. And he really kind of led it with with really good direction and all of that. And then in the meantime, we had to go back to work and figure it out, and uh, they pulled it off. So it was it was it was fine. 
Pete also saying that trades worked out fine on that day. There was a little less action than people anticipated in the first round, but everything went off without a hitch. He did describe one story in which he decided to use a computer, a different computer at the last second after they had gone through their mock draft and uh, tested with something else. He said he made a classic mistake there, but it worked out. Everything got fixed. He also talked about the decision to draft Jordan Brooks in the first round, which had a lot of people scratching their heads, but as do a lot of the Seahawks moves. And in the past, at times, they've turned out pretty well for them. So what went into that decision to take Jordan Brooks and their unwavering confidence in the guys they've got on their draft board? All right, so I'll ask you one football question because okay. I'm not a, I'm not Mel Kuyper Jr., Stumped I'm, not, coach. I'm not Todd McShay, but uh, your pick comes about and a little bit of a surprise, according to the experts, right? Uh, so guy you picked from TCU, Jordan? Texas Tech. Yep. Texas Tech? Yeah. Jordan Brooks. Jordan Brooks. Yep. Jordan Brooks. So what'd you see in Jordan? And uh, was it more difficult to do all your research because of the circumstances or were you really comfortable with all the information you had on him and the people who went right behind him? Yeah, it, uh, we were real comfortable with the process, knowing that it was relative and everybody was limited in the same fashion. You know, we went out to compete to figure out all the edges that we could. We found a guy that was a four-year starter, a four-year all-conference player, terrific kid. We uh, had seen him play across the board in all different types of uh, uh, scenarios and how they their coaches had played him. A fantastic kid with a, with a real sense of purpose. Uh, he is very driven to be great. And, and to us, we, we, we draft the guys that we want to coach and what we want on our team rather than maybe the people that everybody's talking about or looking at. And maybe some, we really are, we've been around long enough, you know, it's year 11 or whatever. And, and we're, we're fine about going our own way, you know, and we, we, we really dig in to try to find the guys we think are going to be the most impacting with our team and, and all in, in our style. So uh, we found a great kid. They have no problem stepping out on their own and taking the guy they believe in. And this was actually from last week's episode, but I thought versatility was a common theme in this year's draft. And they talked about versatility, the need for it in both of their sports and their respective sports, Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll saying that uh, it's just different in today's game. And Pete saying that is key. Yeah, and it's coming through the college game too, and in the high school game. I mean, the game has really spread out. It's become so much more oriented to the throwing game. You know, back in the day, the game was played in a, just on a tabletop almost. You yeah. know, and and it was to take care of the ball. You know, you want to give the ball up. And, and as as every all the game has has evolved, coaches and players and and the, and expectations have shifted so much that you can now feel comfortable about moving the ball, throwing the ball over the place. So that means okay, let's get us more area, more space to to you know to find guys, you know, the opportunities, and and that leaves uh, the opportunity for smaller players and quicker guys and more mobile people on yeah. playing in bigger areas. Uh, that it calls for different uh, kind of makeup. He says the style of game has definitely changed. Linebackers, the old, you know, Nitschke and Butkus and those kind of linebackers. I mean, those guys are great all-time players. They'd have a hard time playing now. You know, they, they'd be guards. You know, they might be playing. Sorry, I'm going to hear from those guys. They're, they're going to be playing on the other side of the ball, you know, but uh, yeah. be on offense, you know. So it, the game has really shifted. In, and uh, the, the the tempo of our game, like the tempo of, of hoops, too, I think is it's just picked up. You know, the clock's running. Let's get some more shots. Let's get some more balls thrown down the field and 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 so that has really uh it has shifted the game 
And how has that shifted their approach as well? You got to hand it to the, the innovators, you know, the coaches that have had the willingness to yeah. go outside the, the, you know, the, the ranks and, and, and to shift the game around. You know, I say all that and then I'm still a real balanced, you know, coach in general. You know, I, I want to have the running game and the passing game because you don't know when you're going to need it. And, and we've done this for years, but we love to bomb you. We love to go downfield. We love to stretch the field yeah. and explode and all that. So we, we're working all along to try to create those opportunities to still use the spacing of the field and and uh so it's a it's the game has definitely changed uh admitting that yes uh he still has his wanting to run the football but that they do also want to be a balanced football team and the needs in, for p- players to be more uh versatile like you're saying uh it, it's it's accentuated in the nfl there's an old saying the more you, you know the more you can do and that's kind of has to do with that thought if you could be a guy that can you could use out of the backfield as a running back well that makes you have a unique you know quality yeah. to you and the different receivers it comes down can the receiver block now i mean of course we get all kinds of guys that can run sure. routes and catch balls, but can the guy help you in the running game or help you in the short passing game? And so there's a yeah. lot to it. Pete also talked about his first draft in Seattle and how things really changed and evolved since then. The difference of building a team when you first got here to now trying to remain and stay good. Uh, this was Pete on the evolution of the team here in Seattle. Those guys kind of in the early years growing up, we we put together some good teams. We won a division a couple of times, and then we went in and won the Super Bowl and had a, a, a fantastic, extraordinary uh, Super Bowl experience. And we just, you know, how do you ever expect to go in a game like that and win by such a mar- large margin? And uh, we had a big game against Denver in, in, in New York, and it was, you know, just an experience of a lifetime. And it is it's it's where we had our first real challenge was to how are we going to deal with that you know most super bowl champions don't do very well in the next couple of years you know yeah. they struggle and they, yeah. they fall apart and it's the, it's the impact of that accomplishment that has such an enormous factor that it can play on everybody in a different way and Pete admitting that this team, um, they've seen the top and the bottom. You know, we've seen the top of it. We've seen the bottom of it. it, it yeah. If the bottom could ever be you're in the Super Bowl and you lose, that could be the bottom. But it's what it came off like because we lost so dramatically in such a challenging moment and a great play by, you know, by the guy from the, the Patriots and, and they get a great victory. Um, so, you know, both of those, Steve, I thought were so important to deal directly with everybody's mentality and get us right back to what the next step we always take, like during the course of a season. The game we just played has nothing to do with the next game unless you let it. And so we have to take the next step in with, with process and intent so that we can clearly get right back to the kind of focus that it takes to do your best. Seahawks fans, of course, hoping that uh, this year, well, we get a full season, but also that that Super Bowl run will be happening. How do you feel about the draft class with maybe almost a week to reflect on it? We'll hear from a lot of different people. Cliff Averill, Joe Fan, Jim Nagy, all with thoughts on the Seahawks draft class and how they performed. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, April 30th. Lots to discuss and dig into still surrounding this draft. In about 15 minutes, we'll take a look at one of the newest Seahawks. Every morning at 6.30, we're doing these just a little deeper dig, getting to know the rookie class, Colby Parkinson, on our list today. But first, 
Let's take a look at the draft class as a whole and how some people are reacting to it. Always love to hear from NFL Network's Greg Rosenthal. He joined Danny and Gallant yesterday and his impression of the Seahawks draft. He said, well, they just think differently here in Seattle. To their credit and maybe not you know, to their disadvantage sometimes, they just think differently than every other team. I mean, they just do. And there's a few teams like that. You know, they're, they're two of the most successful teams I can think of. The Patriots are probably the other team that stands out. Um, no team was expected to take Brooks. We've heard after the fact that a lot of people um, really liked him, and I know it's hard to find linebackers that can cover, but that's not normally uh, a position you think of taking right then, especially when he doesn't necessarily have a, a clear path to playing right away, right away. And then their second-round pick to trade up for, for a guy I don't think anyone expected to go uh, in the second round either. Again, it was, it was very Seattle. They think differently than everyone else. It's worked for the most part for a while, but it hasn't really worked drafting on, on defense for a while. Joe Fan of NBC Sports also joining the station yesterday and talked about the criticism of the Seahawks 2020 draft class. You look at some of the reaction to the Seahawks draft class, and it's by and large incredibly negative. You know, I think someone did all of us a favor of compiling every single draft grade out there. I think there's more than 20 of them. And the Seahawks had a, you know the third worst GPA, so to speak, of any uh, NFL team from the 2020 draft. And I'm, I guess I just, to me, when I'm looking at it, just don't see it. Uh, I don't understand the, the kind of comprehensive negativity that we've seen from a national perspective. I think has infiltrated um, some of the chatter in the Seahawks community as well. And Jim Nagy also joining ESPN Draft Analyst, uh, the station yesterday, and he said he can't stand the criticism that comes immediately after the draft. You're asked to do that, make grades. That's fine, but uh, it's hard to project how things will play out. He also talked about Jordan Brooks and a certain player who's been pretty essential to the Seahawks that he reminds him of. We watched Jordan Brooks, and we left that day, and I was like, man, was that was that not fun? Like, dude, that's why you scout is to find guys like Jordan Brooks. He, you know, he, he just reminded me of Bobby. And again, like the player comp thing is way more popular in the media than it is in the NFL. I'll just say that because if, if John or, or Pete Carroll, you know, hasn't seen a player, you, you better be painting the right picture. So to me, when I was watching Jordan, I mean, I just, I just kept thinking Bobby Wagner, the closing speed, um, you know, the violence, his hitting ability, range, um, he just really reminded me of Bobby when I did Bobby uh, when Bobby was at Utah State. Well, that's a good reminder, right? Cliff Averill also joining the guys in the afternoon. Bob David Moore yesterday saying he was surprised the Seahawks took a linebacker first too, but understands it's part of a plan for the future. And you know what? That's exactly what I was thinking too, right? Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily that that Brooks was a bad player. He's a heck of a ball player, actually. Um, but when you look at the needs for the Seahawks going into this. Obviously, the O-line was a big uh, uh, situation, but they've been, you know, signing guys and they've been, you know, kind of trying to figure that piece out. But going into the draft, we're like, okay, for the future, we need D-linemen. That was a big hit last year. That's what we need. And then you go with the linebacker, which is the strongest position on your defense, you know. So I was surprised when when they went linebacker uh, with the first pick. But obviously, they seen something there. He probably was the best player on the board. They decided to go with him. And they're also... They have to plan for the future. You know, K.J. Wright, this is going to be year 9 or 10 for him. Who knows how many more years he has left in him. You know, Bobby has a few more years. So you kind of got to start planning for the future. And I understand that. How about second-round pick Daryl Taylor, round two, pick 16 out of Tennessee? I love Jim Nagy's thoughts on him and why he's a perfect fit here in Seattle. Daryl Taylor is, is such an imposing-looking guy. You know, he's really put together. He's powerful. 
he's combative. Um, he plays hard. He, he, he just, he, he's a Seahawk. He just plays like a Seahawk to me and he fits that profile. I think he brings a little Frank Clark to that team, you know, just with his edge and, and mentality, uh, getting to know Daryl a little bit. Like he just, there's just something about him that I think is really going to fit there. Also, um, Joe Fan, uh, t- on where some NFL front office members had projected Taylor to land, uh, including one pretty favorable review. I had one guy tell me that he loved Daryl Taylor and that in fact he had him uh, ranked ahead of Caleb on Chasen, um, who was, uh, you know, the 20th overall pick in the draft, which is the Jaguars, and was highly coveted as pretty much the unanimous number two pass rusher in the, the draft behind Chase Young. Jim Nagy thinking that Taylor would have been a first-round pick if not for the injury he sustained. He had a hairline fracture, and his, I believe it was his tibia. But then he, you know, then he had the surgery, and uh, you know, that probably cost him a little bit. He probably slipped a little bit because of, because of that injury. Had he been able to go through a week of one-on-one drills down here at the Senior Bowl, um, he probably would have went in the late first round. They, they probably would have had to get him um, with where that, that pick they took Jordan Brooks with. So um, good wow. value for him. And again, I just think he fits the Seahawks. And you heard uh, mention of that, that he was on their draft board and they even were potentially considering that in the first round, taking Taylor or taking Brooks. It wasn't really between the other linebacker, Queen, sitting there at the Baltimore Ravens ultimately took. It was mostly between those two players, between Brooks and Taylor. Jim Nagy also saying that he's pretty confident Taylor will develop as a pass, pass rusher. Sometimes you learn best from your peers, um, and they're going to have guys in that room, whether you know, bringing Bruce back or Benson Mayoa. I mean, there's guys there that have been in the league and been successful pass rushers. So, um, you know, getting Daryl with yeah. those guys, I mean, he'll pick it up quick, you know, and, and, it, and he had good coaching at Tennessee. I mean, that Jeremy Pruitt staff was a really good staff, but sometimes you just got to keep playing to learn stuff, and he'll he'll pick up all that stuff. Coming up next on The Blitz, speaking of those pass rushers, we've got a little update on Jadevian Clowney and hearing from Greg Rosenthal yesterday on why Clowney hasn't signed yet. Also, continuing our profiles of the newest Seahawks, tight end Colby Parkinson is next up. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz with you Thursday, April 30th. Some breaking news. The Cincinnati Bengals are releasing Andy Dalton, according to ESPN's Adam Schefter. We'll dig into that. And their release of the team's starting QB for the past nine seasons. It's Burroughs season over there in Cincy. But that coming up in about 15 minutes first. Let's dig into our draft profiles and learning about the newest Seahawks. Today, it's tight end Colby Parkinson, who is a California native. Round four, pick 27 for the Hawks out of Stanford. 6'7", 252, ran a 4'77 in the 40-yard dash. Stanford's got a pretty uh, decadent legacy of, of tight ends, and they had five underclassmen tight ends drafted in in seven rounds between 2013 and 2019. Parkinson was a five-star recruit, top 30 overall prospect, and next in line to fall in there and Stanford be part of that legacy. He spoke about that on his conference call after being drafted by the Seahawks, about that being an important uh, place for him, not only because of the education, but 
because of the tight end legacy at Stanford. I mean, it was a huge deal, especially during the recruiting process. Um, obviously, Stanford sets itself apart with the academic side of things, but the tight end tradition was a huge deal for me as well. Um, going to a program that knows how to use the tight end and has had so much success. Um, because of that, I've actually been able to talk to a lot of the guys that have gone before me um, during this process, talk to Ertz, Hooper, Dalton, Caden. I mean, guys all over the place that have, have gone through it and they've been pouring into my life um, and, and giving me advice, which has been awesome. I'm very thankful for that. As a reserve in 2017, he played in 14 games for the Cardinals, scored four touchdowns on 10 catches. Uh, as a sophomore, the departure of Dalton Schultz to the NFL allowed him to be paired up with Caden Smith in Stanford's two tight end sets. Pac-12 coaches named him honorable mention all-conference. He caught 29 passes for 485 yards and seven touchdowns. Then, during his final year on campus, his junior season, Parkinson was a second-team all-Pac-12 selection despite catching only one touchdown in 12 starts, 48 receptions, 589 yards. John Schneider on Colby Parkinson and why they decided to take him. Pretty cool. At the, at the Combine, Coach Shaw came in and said hi to Pete and I and uh, was bragging about him, you know, and loves him. And, you know, he's a huge target. He's got great hands. Uh, you know, they, 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 they didn't have plans to play him right away, but he, he was just too good. And uh, you have big people like that right, running right down the middle of the field. And he's, he, he's, he's going to be a, he's a smart, tough, reliable guy, great guy, just off the charts uh, from a character standpoint. Pete Carroll also on what he likes most about Colby Parkinson. Uh, that he's been such a, a rock-solid kid. You know, he's just been – they rave about, you know, his commitment and his uh, consistency. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, with that frame that we can beef him up a little bit and he can become a really effective blocker force. Um, you know, he's an enormous kid, and, and uh, the, the catching stuff is all there. We, I'd like to see him develop as a blocker and become a, a unique player there uh, as a combo threat. We'll talk more about his blocking in just a moment, uh, but Colby Parkinson and Stefan Sullivan both added to this roster and will compete in that tight end group, which is now getting more and more crowded in that room and a lot of fan favorites in that room. A lot of great hair in that room now with the addition of Colby Parkinson adding to Luke Wilson's, uh, his locks. But Pete mentioning that too, after taking Stefan Sullivan in the seventh round, important to note that Sullivan out of LSU was a tight end there, uh, but drafted or but listed as a wide receiver after they drafted him. So interesting where people could fall there. Pete Carroll on Colby Parkinson and Stefan Sullivan, what they'll bring to the tight end group. Between Colby and, uh, and and Stefan here, what we just did, you had two totally different guys. You know, they're they're just different style players. And again, we always like that. So let's just let let the games begin, see what happens, and see how it goes, and, and, and really make it a great spot for us. Remember that that, that we had um, a great play from Jake last year. You know, in, in a versatile role. As we went through the season, we learned more and more about Jake. He gives us a chance to do some things that are unique just to Jake that nobody else will do. So um, it's been an offseason of creativity for us to try to make sure that we open up the opportunities to, to, to showcase the, the guys' strengths. And so these new guys come in, they just add more dimensions to us and uh, looking forward to it. According to his NFL scouting report, uh, he's a big-time receiver who can be released into routes as wingback slot or wideout. Colby Parkinson on his versatility at tight end and learning every position when he played at Stanford. So this past year, I probably split time with my hand on the ground and uh, standing up, uh, maybe leaning more towards uh, um, having my hand on the ground. Um, I think I can do both. I think uh, when I when I get to Seattle, they'll – uh, obviously use me uh, whatever way is best for them. I mean, I'll just go compete for a spot and uh, 
um, try to soak up as much as I can. And um, something I did at Stanford was uh, my freshman year is learn every single position on the field. That way I could be used at any position. Um, obviously um, didn't play as much as I did this past year, my freshman year, but um, was able to get in um, about 15, 20 snaps a game as a, as a true freshman because of my knowledge of the playbook. So I think that's something that I'll definitely try to replicate as I come into Seattle. So football IQ there uh, off the charts and all those intangibles, according to John Schneider, as we heard, he was more productive in the red zone back in 2018, but he also didn't always have the best throws to work with. And Colby Parkinson priding him on self on being a great pass catcher. It's kind of something I've prided myself on uh, over my career, uh, being a a very good uh, pass catcher, someone that's going to go up and make every catch. Uh, Didn't have a drop last year. Um, on catchable balls, um, something that I take very seriously, make sure I'm always working on it. And to be that consistent presence, especially at the tight end position that the quarterback can depend on, um, can throw the ball anywhere and I can go up and get it. That's good news. Runs well for a pass-catching tight end, according to his scouting reports, and has the athletic traits to attack on all three levels. Uh, Run blocking, though, needs some work, and he mentioned that. His blocking, it's getting better. It's uh, it's definitely getting better. I I mean, I'm I'm willing and able and ready to go in terms of blocking. Um, Obviously, room for improvement was mainly a uh, receiver my first couple years uh, at Stanford and have progressed to a more complete tight end, and I'm, I'm ready to step in and put my hand in the dirt and and get ready to go in the run game. Draft analyst Jim Nagy mentioning that yesterday that the better blocker between Parkinson and Sullivan, he believes, will win the roster spot. You don't get many college tight ends that, that are asked to block or can block. That's why the ones that can go pretty quick. Um, I mean, there are only a couple in this draft. Cole Knapp, you know, from Notre Dame, Adam Troutman from Dayton, um, was, a, was a good inline blocker. So, uh, you know, that's... Uh, that's what those guys get paid to do is coach these guys to put their hand in the ground and, and block people. So, but you're right. Again, I mean, profile wise, they fit more as, as pass catchers and they're going to have to pick up that skill to block. And whichever one of those two picks it up quicker is the guy that's probably going to win the roster spot. According to reports, field stretching flex tight end with above average playmaking ability down the field and near the gold line. And, with the work ethic to boot, Colby Parkinson saying he's a dynamic player. He's ready to come in and compete. I think I'm, I'm someone that's going to come in, like, as I said earlier, and, and be ready to work and absorb everything that I possibly can. Um, I think uh, as a player, I bring a, a dynamic uh, ability as a as a pass catcher and, and someone that can um, be in the slot, be out wide, and also be um, in tight with my hand in the ground and, and running routes and blocking from there as well. So. I think a dynamic player that um, will come in and, and ready to compete and earn a spot on the team. Just where exactly will be the interesting part of this? Because it's a pretty stacked tight end group at this point. Greg Olson, Will Disley, still working back from his Achilles injury, but a huge part of this team. So far, Jacob Hollister and fan favorite Luke Wilson. Then you add the fourth round pick in Parkinson and the seventh round selection in Stefan Sullivan. And you've got an interesting battle there that definitely fits with Pete Carroll's always compete philosophy. Some quick fun facts about Colby Parkinson. Uh, well, he plays and enjoys guitar and golf. Something that the fan base uh, would want to know. Uh, I play guitar a lot. So I'm an avid guitar player um, and an avid golfer. Not very good at either, but I try my best. <laughs> and while he's a California native, he also lived here for a brief time as a child, he says. So he rooted 
for the teams here, and it's fun for him to get to come here uh, because there's a little bit of nostalgia tied into that. He also has a degree in structural engineering, no big deal, minor in architecture, and dreams of starting a civil engineer firm with his brother post-football career, so big ambitions even beyond football. And then finally, he's got some pretty nice hair, which does fit in here well in Seattle, and he said, though, people were not a fan of his hair at first. Yeah, so initially... A lot of people were not a fan of it because, you know, it takes time. So there was a, quite a long, awkward phase where it wasn't really falling down. It was kind of just sticking out to the side, and I have to wear a hat almost every day. Uh, but now that it's, it's finally to the length that I want it, um, the family loves it. They think it's a, a cool little style, and, and I like it. I think it looks cool flowing out of the back of the helmet especially. So definitely stick with it for a while. I think you just described everybody's haircut haircut during self-quarantine, right? You know, it's just that weird, awkward grow-out phase. Haven't had a haircut in a while. So, yeah, might be wearing hats for a lot of the time. That might be happening for me. Up next on the Blitz, it's time for the hot list. How did the rest of the NFC West fare in this year's draft? We get some thoughts specifically on San Francisco. Are they better today than they were a year ago? It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel. The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes. What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go. How did the rest of the NFC West fare In the draft this past week, we know how Cliff Kingsbury's house is doing. Palatial. Is it a house? Is it a palace? I don't know. You've never used that outdoor kitchen, Cliff. You can't tell me that you've ever used that outdoor kitchen. But the 49ers, a lot of people with mixed opinions on what they did in this draft. Nick Wagner, who covers the Niners for ESPN, joining 710 yesterday. He said, it's hard to say the 49ers are better now than they were last year. Here is that quote. I think if you look at it overall, the Niners were hoping to get better. I don't know that they're necessarily better right now than they were on, say, March 1st. But I think that what they did this offseason was put themselves in a position to kind of extend their window and stay competitive for as long as possible. And um, I know they weren't happy that they that DeForest Buckner's gone and happy that Emmanuel Sanders is gone. But they did what they had to do to try to give themselves a chance to stay contenders now, but stay contenders for the future also. Nick Wagner also discussing John Lynch's approach to building the roster. They were willing to roll the dice and go after Trent Williams. And then they they drafted Javon Kinlaw saying this guy could be our Buckner replacement. You know, DeForest Buckner made $22 million a year from the Colts. That was a price the Niners just simply weren't willing to go to, no matter how good Buckner was. And he was good. He checked a lot of boxes for them. But they they figured they could get Kinlaw at a fraction of the cost. Maybe he won't produce at quite that level, but he's got upside to reach that type of of level as well. And then you say the drop-off from, you know, the receiver that they could have taken at 13 or 14, a guy like Judy or C.D. Lamb or or one of those guys, yeah, they passed on him and they could have used one of those guys. But in their mind, Brandon Ayuk from Arizona State, there's not a huge drop-off from those guys to him. So that's kind of what I mean by value proposition is those, those series of decisions that they had to make. And I think John Lynch does a good job of kind of keeping that all in context of, hey, you know, we, we'd love to keep all these guys. We all know the nature of the league. That's not possible. So how can we do this in a way that positions us so that we can continue to contend right now and also to make sure that our window is open as long as possible? How 
does everyone feel there in San Fran about Jimmy Garoppolo? And after his performance in the Super Bowl, especially, jury's still out, according to Nick. For the Niners, I would say the jury is probably still out a little bit. You know, they're in a a situation where he's only started one full season at this point, and he makes a lot of money, but they're still capable of getting out of that contract relatively scot-free after next season. And so I think they really want to see him with another year under his belt. You know, Matt Ryan took a big leap in his second year under Kyle Shanahan. And I'm not saying Garoppolo is going to be an MVP or anything like Matt Ryan did, but I think that they believe that he could cut down on some of the turnovers and mistakes, which are the things that have kind of plagued him. Also, just have to play this Bomani Jones quote again, because why not? Any excuse. And I feel bad because I wind up being the cat going all extra hard on it, and I'm sure it appears to some of y'all that I got some kind of beef with uh, young James, and I got no beef with James. I got no beef with James whatsoever. He's the American dream, right? Not as good as his salary indicates. That's what I want to be. I always want to get paid like I'm better than I am. So, like, good for Jimmy. Not as good as his salary indicates. Nick Wagner also on Richard Sherman and his relationship with the media in San Fran. Past season, he was happy for the most part, as you would expect uh, when they when they got good and they were a contender. And so, um, he, you know, he's very insightful, always you know, helps him talking about football for sure, but uh, definitely a guy that's become a go-to guy. And I, I think he uh, he won our uh, local chapter of the PFWA's uh, Good Guy Award for, for dealing with the media this year. So uh, very accessible wow. and, and helpful whenever we need. Oh, Sherm. I miss you. Linebacker Clay Matthews filing a grievance against the Los Angeles Rams, speaking of NSC West, over $2 million in unpaid guarantees. We've heard both Matthews and his former Rams teammate, Todd Gurley, be very public about their frustration of not getting paid by their former teams. They were both released by the team on March 19th. As a result, Matthews submitted his grievance with the uh, Players Association, which will officially file the grievance on his behalf. Matthews' two-year deal with the Rams included $5.5 million in guarantees. He's still owed $2 million roster bonus. He's currently a free agent, and because it's $2 million offsets based on a deal with a new team, the Rams could be waiting to see where he signs before paying him. 33-year-old Matthews believes, though, he is due the money now. We heard Les Need come out and say those guys are definitely owed money and they will get paid, but it's that language in the contracts of Gurley and Matthews, um, the offsetting language, allowing a short-term deferral of payment for tax purposes. So... We'll see how these things play out. Also, unclear if Gurley is planning to file a grievance or not right now. The Rams owe Gurley $7.55 million in a roster bonus, but offset language can reduce that payment by $2.5 million. No big deal, just a little offsetting language to the tune of $2.5 million. The Cincinnati Bengals are releasing Andy Dalton this breaking news just this morning. He was the team's QB for the past nine seasons there in Cincinnati in the jungle. Uh, Dalton had seemed unlikely to retain his starting role. That we know for sure because number one overall draft pick Joe Burrow headed to headed to Cincy uh, as the savior there QB. But uh, Dalton has expressed a willingness to serve as the team's backup during the final year of his contract. Looked like. That won't happen as of now. The Bengals lack the cap space to keep Dalton's $17.7 million salary for the 2020 season. I'm really going to miss uh, quotes in Cincy like this one. Here you go, guys. 4-0. Whatever it takes. Let's get it. Playmakers on three. One, two, three. Playmakers. Playmakers. Yeah. Yo, give me time on this one right here. This has got a chance to be a touchdown. Just the most chill 
just the most chill dude. Greg Rosenthal of NFL Network, who I always love hearing from him. You can also catch him uh, on Around the NFL podcast. And if you listen to the uh, Rosenthal Jesselnik Vanity Project, also a great podcast and listen. Um, but he and his best friend, Anthony Jesselnik, digging into football and other topics. But Greg Rosenthal joined Danny and Gallant yesterday to talk about Jadevian Clowney in particular, why he hasn't signed yet. But it's a combination of things. You know, I think he saw himself because, you know, people like me who, who uh, were absolutely wrong thought maybe he could become like the highest paid defensive player in the league. And, I, and that wasn't going to happen, apparently. You know, teams just didn't see him that way. He's coming off uh, another season where he had injuries. He's usually been able to play through them. He's really uh, disruptive. You know, there's some talk that he, you know, he's, he's been a superstar now for a long time. Also on the compensatory deadline and delaying a clowny sign. Well, I asked around, and I didn't get the answer, by the way, that there's a deadline that's usually about May 7th or 8th where, you know, you no longer count against the compensatory pick formula. And I would guess that no one's going to sign Clowney at this point before that date, which is only about two weeks away. So that that means that the Seahawks are not going to get any compensatory pick back uh, if Clowney signs elsewhere. NFL's Network's Greg Rosenthal also on Seattle not signing Clowney and potentially that scaring off other teams. I don't think he's, a, he's certainly a problem in the locker room or anything, but I, you know, when you pay a guy that sort of money, whether it's a Khalil Mack or Aaron Donald, you kind of want him to be the leader of your team. And maybe maybe teams who haven't been with him or what they've heard, they, they don't see him as that guy. And um, I think they look at Seattle and think, well, it's interesting that Seattle's not paying him that sort of money, that they're not going over the top to keep him. And, and maybe that's a little bit of a red flag for teams out there. Cliff Averill also joining Bob David Moore yesterday to chat about the Seahawks' pass rush and thinks the Seahawks need to get Clowney back. I think they need to bring him back. You know, I, I also think the pickup that they've done this offseason through free agency and also the draft was huge. Obviously, that was a, a, a area of concern, right? You know, going to get Bruce Irvin, getting Benson, um, you know, getting some of Jaron Reed locked up for a little bit as well. But uh, Clowney is just one of those players that, you know, he, he takes over games. We've seen that. You know, there was a couple games last year where he can just flat out take over games. And I think they should bring him back for another year. I think it's be- in his best interest to come back for another year because it, if you end up, he's going to sign a one-year deal somewhere. It's not going to be a long-term deal or anything like that. You might as well go back to a team that you, you know the defense, you know the coaches, you know the scheme to give yourself the best possibility to be productive. So I think both sides need each other in this particular space right now. Uh, also, the expectations uh, for first-rounders and L.J. Collier perhaps taking a step forward in that regard. But uh, Cliff Averill mentioning Alton Robinson, one of the newest draftees, as someone that he has worked with and someone who impressed him uh, during training because he asked a lot of questions. Outside of just watching this film and seeing how productive he, he was, it was more so like, the questions that he was asking. Because as a veteran, as a veteran player, and I still have that mindset for whatever reason, the first thing I look for in rookies when they walk into that locker room is, are they asking questions? Or do they come into this locker room thinking they know everything, right? Because that's going to be the difference maker in a player that's going to actually grow and become something in this NFL 
or a player that's just going to fizzle out after a little bit of time because he already assumes he knows everything. And Alden was uh, the guy that was, you know, he asked about football, of course, but then the things uh, outside of football, you know, what is, quote, unquote, the life like? How do you take care of your body? What what does it take to be a productive pro? And that was huge for me. And once I, I realized where his mindset was, it made it that much more fun uh, for me to be around him and, and kind of teach him the game a little bit. Jim Nagy, ESPN draft analyst, also joining 710 yesterday and said that Alton Robinson can win uh, win a pass rush in multiple different ways. You go back to his junior tape at Syracuse when he had the double-digit sacks, and on tape, he he's really a different guy because on tape he looks like a guy that's you know, 6'4", 6'5". He plays really long. And then we got the verified measurements back over the summer, and he was like, whatever, 6'2 and chain. I was like, wow, that guy plays long for a 6'2 body type. But the cool thing about him, like, he can win with speed and he can win with power. Like, he, he's got a really nice get-off. Uh, he's got that powerful long arm move. He can, he can beat you in a lot of different ways. That's good news. You add that to Daryl Taylor, their second-round pick, who Jim Nagy believes is a perfect fit for the Seahawks. Daryl Taylor is, is such an imposing-looking guy. You know, he's really put together. He's powerful. He's combative. Um, he plays hard. He, he, he just he, He's a Seahawk. He just plays like a Seahawk to me, and he fits that profile. And I think he brings a little Frank Clark to that team, you know, just with his edge and, and mentality. Uh, getting to know Daryl a little bit, like he just there's just something about him that I think is really going to fit there. He also was a consideration for the Seahawks in the first round as they are apt to go their own way and pick the guys that they believe are best and the most value at that spot. And number 27, it wasn't between uh, the other linebacker, Queen, uh, who the Baltimore Ravens ended up taking in the following selection, but it was between Taylor and Jordan Brooks at number 27. Jim Nagy saying he's confident Taylor will develop as a pass rusher. Sometimes you learn best from your peers, um, and they're going to have guys in that room, whether you know, bringing Bruce back or Benson Mayoa. I mean, there's guys there that have been in the league and been successful pass rushers. So, um, you know, getting Daryl with yeah. those guys, I mean, he'll pick it up quick, you know, and, it, and, it, and he had good coaching at Tennessee. I mean, that's, that's Jeremy Pruitt's staff was a really good staff, but sometimes you just got to keep playing to learn stuff, and he'll, he'll pick up all that stuff. Also saying the Seahawks D will be way faster with a youth infusion next year, which is music to all Seahawks fans' ears. That's a wrap for the hot list in the entire Blitz at 6 hour. Don't forget Jerry DePoto on 8.30 a.m. this morning with Danny and Gallant, as well as John Schneider, the man himself at 9 a.m. Going to ask him, have to ask him about his dog's involvement in the entire draft process because just, just too cute. It's next. Danny and Gallant right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.